0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, A couple of things before I start. The first thing is a bit of an interesting um, uh, notice is earlier this week, I was contacted by the East Texas Baptist University. Uh, Their softball team is coming to Adelaide on Tuesday to Saturday, and they're really keen to come and serve and to bless our church. I don't know why they called me. They must have knew knew I was in a lot of trouble, um, which I'm not. But uh, yeah, kind of out of the blue, got contacted. um, So there's 31 uh, softball players, young women, uh, the women's under 24, women's softball team coming. They've got uh, six games over four days, but they're super keen. And we did say, like, look, you don't have to, it's all right. They're so keen to come and help and serve. Uh, so, Wednesday afternoon, they're going to do a softball clinic. Friday night, they're going to go help with the Lobethal uh, Living Nativity. Then Saturday morning, they're coming to help uh, do some gardening around uh, this property and around the manse and a few other things. Uh, and then they're um, back in Sydney on uh, Sunday. So, we don't actually get to meet them or <laughs> most of them won't see them. But I just thought I'd share that. What a great example of uh, brothers and sisters from a r- the other side of the world coming and serving. If you want to come Saturday morning and help out with the working bees from 8 till 10, there's 31 of them. So there'll be like heaps of people. <laughs> um, so we're not like desperate for volunteers. It's all right. If you want to sleep and have the sleep in. Um, but uh, yeah, really exciting stuff. The second thing is usually we have, and we are today, a public Bible reading and and it's so not separate from the sermon, and uh, our Bible readers is sick, uh, so I'll do it. And it's kind of fair, because this is probably one of the um, toughest Bible readings uh, this year, in terms of some of the names that uh, are covered. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Nehemiah chapter 8. I put my bookmark in the wrong space. I should also say, if you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one from the um, the Bible drawer in the foyer. And if you, if you don't have a Bible at home either, like you can take that. That's yours. Uh, we would love uh, for you to have that. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, we've been working through this series, this book. Uh, I'll start at the end of chapter 7, the second half of 73. Um, and uh, we'll go from there. So, Nehemiah chapter 8. So, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all of the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood uh, Mattathiah. Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah. On his left was Pedadeah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Don't worry, there's more. Hold your applause to the end. Um, Ezra opened the book. He had no trouble with the names. Ezra, Uh, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Why don't we all stand up? Let's stand up. Should have started with that. Anyway, stood up for the reading of the book of the law of the Lord. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Everyone put your face to the ground. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The Levites, Jeshua, uh, Benai, Sarabiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, said all the people with a liturgical background. Do sit down. I won't make you stand for the explanation part of the reading, just the reading part. Um. Excuse me. Do we take the Bible seriously? Do we actually believe in what the Bible has to say? Do we do we understand what the Bible has to say? Is this book a book of guidelines and opinions and uh, nice things to think about, or is it the very Word of God? that can transform lives. What if we took the Bible seriously? What would this community look like if we really took the Bible seriously? Now that we're working through uh, this sermon series in Nehemiah, um, and what we've seen so far is... Uh, in the first chapter, Nehemiah hears about the plight in Israel where the walls have been destroyed. They're left in ruins. And he hears about it and his heart is torn up. He's in despair knowing that his people, the city of his people is in ruins. And he's in in Persia like, um, as a cupbearer to the king. So kind of like the chief of staff, really prominent position. And he asked the king, can I go and help Rebuild the wall, and the King says, "Great, go, and I'll send you a um uh, a people to protect you on your trip. I'll also send you all the materials you need." The king gave him every blessing to go and to build the wall. Nehemiah goes, and he he goes, and he he travels to Jerusalem. He inspects the wall all the way around and sees how bad it really is. The wall's completely decimated and destroyed, and this city without an identity. Without walls, without protection, without the favor of God is what it represented. And so he gathers the Israelites and he, he tells them about the situation. Look, the, 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 the city's in ruins. Let's build it together. Let's build it together. And so they, they build the walls. And each family uh, has their part to play. Every person, man, woman, and child had their part to play in rebuilding the wall. But then there's opposition. Tobiah and Sennacherib, no Sanballat, sorry, a lot of names here. Tobiah and Sanballat, uh oppose the wall. They uh, accuse Nehemiah of like, what are you doing? This is, you know, you, this is a terrible thing. You know, foxes would walk on this and it'll crumble. It's useless. Your people are useless. You're useless. So a lot of external opposition. But they keep going. They keep building. And then in chapter uh, four, sorry, chapter five, that was four, five, we see opposition from within. Uh, the rich taking advantage of the poor and corruption throughout the people of God. And then in chapter six, we see Balat and Tobiah, they've almost built the wall. They come back and they want to distract uh, Nehemiah. They don't want to distract him and bring him to invite him out to, oh no. But Nehemiah says, oh no, I won't go. Glad you're all listening. (laughs) And then in chapter 6, verse 15, uh, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 52 days, they rebuilt the wall, and it's done, it's completed. But that's only chapter six, and there's 12 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. And so, if this book is about rebuilding the wall, then the book would finish there, like that's job done. Nehemiah's finished, he's complete. Let's party, done. Maybe a short epilogue, but there's a, there's six other chapters. That tells us that the book of Nehemiah is not about rebuilding a wall. It's not about, not just about rebuilding the wall. Now he comes after chapter 6, the wall's finished, but Nehemiah's job's not done. Now it's time to rebuild the culture, the people, the community, into the community of God. They've had a wall's been rebuilt, now they need cultural reform. And uh, the way that Nehemiah and, and Ezra, um, uh, the teacher of the law, the way they achieve this is through bringing out the book of the law, which is, uh, which is the Old Testament. It was like the first five books, um, but from what we hear might probably include some of the Israelite history as well. They take out the Bible and they read it. As we heard in the reading just before, Ezra comes, and he he brings out the Bible. They read it, and through that, they see reform in the people of God. One pastor's description of of chapters 8 through to 10, or the rest of the book, is the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to create the people of God. The Spirit of God taking the Word of God to create the community of God, Um. Because Nehemiah's not, job is not done. He's not done after the wall has been built. So as we saw in this book, Ezra brings the book out. Um, and on the first day of the seventh month, they, they bring it before the assembly. They invite everyone, all the men, all the women, everyone could understand. I take that to mean uh, even children who are, are illiterate and can hear and understand things. They're invited into the assembly in front of the water gate to hear the book of the law. They create a podium for Ezra to stand on so that he is higher than everyone and can see everyone. And more importantly, that everyone can see him. And this isn't to to like elevate and to celebrate Ezra. Like, look, we've got this super great preacher. Look, no, no, it's to elevate how important the word is that everyone can see and hear Ezra reading the word. And he reads it. Read it. Uh, from from um, daybreak until noon, and the Israelites' response: they worship, they worship. In um, after our passage, it shares that they they start mourning and weeping, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But Nehemiah says, "Today is a day of great joy." The day is holy to the Lord. Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a time for worship as God's Word is unpacked. And he didn't just read it. He didn't just share the information and then just throw it out there and then leave it. He actually organized the Levites and all those tricky names to say to explain it to people. Because the goal was not to, to send communicate communications out, to send the Word out. The goal was that the the word of God would reach in, into the people, into their hearts, so that people would understand, and and would hear the word. And even the word the word in Hebrew for hear is shema, and it's not uh, hearing as we would take hearing as I can hear it. It's come into my ears, my you know that sense has received it, hearing. And uh, in Greek, akua, which is uh, the Greek word for hearing is the same in Greek. It's not just about hearing. It's about hearing and receiving and doing something with it. It's not just information that has reached your ears, but it's come into your heart. And that is the goal for the Word of God. And that's what uh, Ezra has set up with all um, the Levites and those explaining and instructing uh, the, the law teaching the Word. And that's my job as a pastor, is not just to throw information out, but to teach it so that we'd be able to understand and hear and respond to the Word of God. Now, I'm not alone in that. The New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit. One of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is that it, uh, is to help us understand the Word of God, not just hear it, but believe it to receive it. And so that's our passage that we had read. My question is, what happens when the people of God hear, receive, understand, apply the Word of God? What happens when the people of God really hear the Word of God? And what we see in these next uh few verses, but we'll keep traveling, kind of quick overview of 8 and 9 and 10. What we see is Israelites are confirmed in their identity. Uh, They confess their sin. They covenant with God, restore their relationship, and they commit to living His way. So the first thing that happens... So. Hearing the Word of God leads to confirmation. This next bit, if we keep reading along in Nehemiah, is um, as they read the law, um, something happens. They discover something. There's something new here that they discover that they have to respond to. So from chapter 8, verse 13, on the second day of the month, so the very next day, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the Word of the law. They read it every day. They found written in the law, which the law the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites will live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim his word and spread it throughout the towns in Jerusalem, go into the hill country and bring out branches of olives and wild olive trees from um, uh, myrtles, ponds, and shades to make temporary shelters as it is written. Now, when I was reading this um initially, I was like, what is going on here? Why is why is why are they doing that? Why, why, once they hear the word, they start and they go and build a tent. And as I looked into it, it's actually quite profound and powerful because what they're doing is they're actually, they as they read, they read scripture together, they realize that it's the seventh month, it's the month of the festival of tabernacles, or the festival of booths, or tents. Tabernacle means a tent. It also means God dwelling with his people, tabernacle. And uh, it's a festival that the Israelites celebrated, or the law commanded them to celebrate, to remember that God delivered them from Egypt, and that God dwells with them, and that they are his people. Leviticus uh, 23 verse 42 and chapter 23 kind of gives the instructions on this festival. Verse 42 says you shall dwell in booths for 7 days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that you that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Israelites They celebrated this festival and and dwelled in tabernacles and tents to remind each other and to remind themselves who they are and whose they are. And it's not just a reminder, but a celebration, a participation, an expression of that reality that they are the people of God, that he delivered them from Egypt. He was the one that saved them. And they belong to Him. That's who they are, the people of God. And as they read Scripture, the first thing that happens to the people of Israel after they read Scripture is that they're confirmed in who they are. And then they celebrate that. They do that. Now for the Israelites and for Jews today, they have the festival of booths and festival and other festivals to, to celebrate and to participate in. Christians don't celebrate that anymore. But we have other practices that we celebrate and we participate in to remind ourselves, to to declare and to um uh to to participate in who we are and whose we are and what God has done for us. Now, what are those two Practices, anybody? Communion, louder, and, and baptism. That's right. So communion, which we'll do um, after the sermon tonight, is a celebration, a, a participation in the very work that Jesus did to save us. His blood shed for us and his body broken for us. And it's a confirmation of who we are, that we have been bought by the blood of Christ, and we are a new creation. We're in Christ, and the reminder and a and a receiving of the work that Jesus did for us. And baptism is similar; it's it's a celebration of who we are. When um one of the, one of the things I always found puzzling is why did Jesus get baptized? Because one thing I uh, you know, one, one thing I thought was baptism is all about the washing away of sins. And there's this, certainly part of it, a demonstration of that. But then why would Jesus need to get baptized? Because Jesus never sinned. But then in, in Mark's gospel, and I think all the gospels have a similar account. When Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist, his cousin, um, baptized him. He didn't want to, but Jesus says, no, nah, you got to um, <laughs> coerce his cousin to baptizing him. Um, but John, John did, and he baptized Jesus. And as he baptized, he went under the water. As he came up, uh, the heavens opened, and a dove descended onto Jesus, and a voice from heaven declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I love this person. I value this person. They are mine. Now, when a Christian is baptized, it's that same baptism, that declaration to the world that I am God's son or daughter, and God is pleased with me. He loves me. I am his. My sins have been washed away. I've been crucified with Christ, buried with him, and I rise with him in new life that he has given me. Baptism is a sign of Uh, that celebrates our identity, and it confirms who we are. And so as we read Scripture and we receive Scripture and the truth of uh, Jesus and what He's done for us, the natural response is to be baptized, to confirm who's and who we are. And if you haven't been baptized, and you believe that Jesus is Lord of your life, and you believe in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, you, get the, you have the opportunity, the joy of getting baptized. I'd love to talk to you about that. And many here have been baptized and can share this same story of, of the joy that it is to declare, I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. So if you're interested in getting baptized, please come chat to me. I would love to do it. We, gosh, we've got a pool right here. Like, you know, in two and a half hours is how long it takes to fill up the pool. We could do them later tonight. I don't think that's very realistic. <laughs> but you know, there's no, no, if you believe Jesus is Lord, there's no reason not to get baptized. Uh, some people feel like, oh, I just need to sort out my life first. But baptism isn't the end of the journey. It's not based on your work and getting yourself sorted. It's the beginning of the journey. It's about what Jesus has done. And he's died and he's risen for you. He's brought you forgiveness. He's given you new life. Anyway, anyway, enough about that. So, receiving the word leads to confirmation of the Israelites who they are. They they instantly celebrate that in the festival of booths. But then, as they continue to read the word, that confirmation leads to confession. In chapter 9, verse 1, on the 24th day of the same month, so 24 days later, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worship of the Lord their God. The Israelites realized who they were and whose they were. But as they continued to receive the word of God, it led them to confession. And um, uh, it, it reads the list of the people leading the confession. And all those people um, say, stand up, praise the Lord of the God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then the rest of chapter 9 is the, is the unpacking of their confession. And we actually get to see it and read it. And I encourage you uh, to go and, and to read it. Um, sometime this week, Nehemiah 9, really powerful stuff. But I'm just going to retell their confession as they kind of what they've heard from Scripture and, um, and and kind of bringing that back to God in confession. And as I tell you what they say, try and pick up a pattern, like pay attention and see if there's a pattern in what uh, they say. So they start off saying, praising the Lord, bless the Lord, praise His glorious name, may He, may he be exalted above Uh, all blessing and praise. They say, you alone are the Lord. There is one God, one God, and He, Yahweh, is it, the Hebrew name for the Lord. He is the one that created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And He's the one that sustains the heavens and the earth. God created all things. He sustained all things. He gives life to everything and all of creation worships Him worships God. And he is the God that chose Abraham, the, the, the descended, the forefather of all Israel. He chose Abraham and set apart a people for himself, that they would be his people. And he made a covenant with them. He established a relationship with them. And he he kept his promise to his people, and he led Abraham to the promised land, and, and then eventually they made they found their way into Egypt, and they were under oppression. But God heard their cry. They cried out to him. God heard their cry, and he delivered them from Egypt. He did amazing signs and wonders and delivered them from Egypt. He established a name for himself. De- defeating the great superpower of Egypt at the time and did wonderful things. He led them to Mount Sinai and showed them the law of the Lord, showed them how to live as his people because he is the one that saved them from Israelites. He is the one that, that set them apart for himself. He's the one that Creator, the Lord of the world. And in, uh, in the desert, he, he provided food and water and provided for his people because he loved them. But their ancestors acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and refused to obey the law of the Lord. Not mindful of all the great things that God has done, they rejected his law and lived their own way and didn't want to follow in his ways. And now, uh, as they entered the promised land, they, they appointed for themselves. Their own king, even though God was their leader, they set themselves their own king, actually brought them back into the situation of slavery as they were in Egypt. But God is a God who is ready to forgive, and he loves his people, and he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not forsake them. Even when they created an idol, a golden calf, um, while Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the law, Israel created an idol to worship not God, but someone else, something else of their own creation, completely rejecting God. Even then, God refuses to forsake them. And God continues to lead them and He gives them His Spirit to instruct them and He sustains them for 40 years in the desert. And then as they enter into the kingdom, into Israel, uh, he, he gives them and delivers them all the kingdoms in the area so they can take possession of the land, the promised land that God set aside for them. And their, des- des- their descendants went in and they possessed the land. They were prosperous in the land. They became abundant and God blessed them in the land that He promised them. But God's people continued to be disobedient and rebelled against him, rejected his law, killed the prophets, and blasphemed his holy name. And therefore God gave them over to their enemies who came in and conquered them, and, and uh, they were oppressed. And Israel cried out. They cried out to God. So God ca- came and saved them. He delivered them from his enemies. But after they had rest, they continued to do evil. They continued to disobey the law of the Lord, and so God handed them over to their enemies again. And they cried out, and God heard their cry, and He delivered them. But then, after they had rest, they did evil again, and 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 continued to disobey the law of the Lord. So God handed them over to their enemies, and they cried out, and God delivered them. And then, when they rested, I'll stop there. Do you see a pattern emerging? Do you see a pattern? And what's the point of this confession? What do Israelites realize as they read Scripture and they see this pattern? There's two things, two parallel stories going on. One, God loves them dearly. And two, they are sinners who've rejected God and don't deserve his love these two parallel realities. And if we read Scripture and we we don't come to the conclusion that God loves us, we're not reading Scripture right. It's clear. No matter who you are and where you've come from or what you've done, God loves you. God loves you. But also, if we read Scripture and we come to the conclusion that we're not sinners that we don't have to um, conform our way to God's way, but rather God's way needs to conform to our way, then we're not reading Scripture right. These two truths are, are true in the world that God has made. God loves us, but we are sinners. We've rejected God. And the great story of the Bible is that that's not where things are left. Because of God's great love, He sends Jesus. Jesus is the climax, the culmination, the the point, the apex, the, the, the message of the whole Bible. Jesus comes to express God's love and to give forgiveness to those who would believe in Him. For God so loved the world That he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We'll be able to dwell with God forever. This great divide that we've caused, it's something that we can't fix because we're the problem in the first place. It takes God sending his son because he loves us so much. And so the central truth of the gospel, the central truth of the Bible is that God loves me. God loves you. And I'm a sinner. We are sinners. But Jesus has saved me. Jesus saved me. I am a child of God. So Israel confesses they read scripture they realize these truth truth God loves me but I'm a sinner so they confess they bring that to God they don't you they they don't feel so much guilt that they feel oh there's no way God will receive me or have me back so I'll just I'll leave I'll go away no they realize both the the wretched state of their life but even more so the incredible unfathomable amount of God's love for them so they come to God they return to God in confession As they read Scripture, it reminds them who they are, but then also leads them to confess. And they confess. But they don't just leave it there. Their confession leads to covenant. Confession leads to covenant. 9 verse 38 says, In view of all this, this confession, who we are, we are making a binding agreement, a binding covenant. I'll explain that in a sec. Putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. So, reading the word, hearing the word leads to confirmation, and that leads to confession, and confession leads to covenant. Because the point of confession is not just to bring out um, all of our darkness and dirtiest and all of our mistakes, just to make us feel gu- guilty. The purpose of confession is that Jesus might forgive us and restore a relationship. And that's what covenant is all about—the covenant that Israel had with his people, the covenant that God has, the new covenant that God has with us in Jesus. And it's 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 a, it's not just a legal document or a legal relationship with with obligations. It's a relationship. Imagine this scenario: um, a covenant, the kind of the best analogy for covenant we have in today's world, because we really don't have covenants these days. But the only way, place we do is in marriage. A Marriage is a covenant promise, uh, a husband to a wife, a wife to a husband. And uh, covenants, imagine the scenario that a husband cheats on his wife, breaks that covenant, and, go, and, and, and leaves and separates himself. But he sees the error in his ways, he confesses, and he wants to be restored to his wife. Now, if he were to come and, and just come back home and then commit to doing the dishes again and I'll take out the trash and I'll, I'll sort out bin day and I'll, I'll um, do whatever, you know, that's what restores the relationship. He just comes in and just does the chores that, you know, half the chores or maybe two-thirds because he needs to make up for it. That's not what restores a relationship. That's not what will heal the relationship. Will heal that relationship is love, is covenant, is forgiveness, is reconciliation, a restoring of the relationship for the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. And same with confession. We confess and then not... um, live lives and and trying to achieve getting back into a relationship with God by just doing religious activity is by renewing that covenant, restoring the relationship we have with God. And that work is done by Jesus. Jesus is the one who establishes a new covenant, restores us to God, not by our works, but by his The goal of confession, the goal when we read Scripture or when the Spirit works in us and convicts us of sin is not just that we feel bad, it's so that we'd be restored to God, that the relationship would be restored, that we receive forgiveness. Uh, And as we read Scripture, that leads to confirmation, which leads to confession, which leads to covenant which then leads to commitment. Because the Israelites, they they return to the binding agreement, the covenant, and it's in the first half of 10 is all the names of the people who are restored to God because covenant isn't about obligations. It's about people. It's about relationships. And I won't read all those, but if you do want um, some kids' names, some great suggestions in there. Um. But then the rest of the, verse 10, verse 20, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, all these people, uh, they separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of the Lord, together with their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who are able to understand, everyone, uh, these now join with their fellow Israelites and nobles. They bind themselves with a curse and oath to follow the law of the Lord. To follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, decrees of the law. Sorry, decrees of the Lord, our Lord, or God, our Lord. So they commit to walking in God's way. They they've been convicted of sin. They they confess their sin. They re-enter relationship with God. Then they commit to living His way. This is what happens when we hear the word of God, when we receive the word of God. We commit to live God's way, not our way, but God's way. And it's really fascinating what, like specifically what the Israelites commit to, what's specifically called out here. The first thing is holiness. In verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us and to take their daughters for our sons. That's the first commitment they make. Now, I want to be really clear, crystal clear about this verse. This verse is not, not about interracial marriage. It is not about interracial marriage. This verse is about holiness. Or more specifically, this verse is about idols. Because uh, the way that Israel was distracted and deceived and distorted away from worshiping Yahweh worshipping the one true God is they would intermarry with other nations and the other nations they would marry themselves to would pull them away to worship their gods, other gods, untrue gods. And so this verse is not about interracial marriage. It's about idols. It's about holiness, worshipping the one true God. It's a commitment to be holy and to not be distracted or deceived by other things. And as we read Scripture and we commit to living God's way, the first thing we commit to is being holy, being set apart for God, living for God. Now, the problem with humanity is that we are excellent, brilliant at justifying our own idols of somehow... Making it okay that I I don't fully follow the Lord, but I also dabble in all this other stuff and give my life over to all these other things and and put aside the law and the way of God so that I can indulge in all these other things and justify it. We're very good at justifying our own idols. I also think we're, we're excellent at identifying idols in other people's lives, but we're blind to the ones in our own. Of career, of family, of fame of status, of sex, identity, of service. Even good things, good things can be idols that distract us away from God. Are we fully devoted to God or are there things in our lives that are deceiving us, distracting us, distorting us away from God? Are we seeking after God? and seeking to live as his child, his daughter or son? Are we seeking after that and something else or something else entirely? I think we need to talk about idols a lot more to identify them, to confess them, to get rid of them. Now, the means of getting rid of idols, it's um, we don't just uh, try and idol them away, you know, never talk about them again and, and just try really hard to do religious things or do, our, do other things to, to make sure I'm not serving this idol, so I'll just do this and do this, and soon that other thing will become the idol. Even the religious activity might become the idol. The means that we get rid of idols is by setting our hearts on God because an idol is our heart being distracted from God being set on other things. The means of defeating idols is setting our hearts on God. Um, I'm reading this book at the moment, Beautiful Resistance, about um, being formed as a disciple of Jesus in the culture that we're in. It's interesting, the first uh, two chapters, the first one's on idols, the second one's on Sabbath, uh, but the third one isn't on uh, generosity. So John... um, got that wrong but anyway when um this is what he says about defeating idols when you gather in jesus name and worship him no matter how large or small the assembly you are bearing witness before the powers that you cannot be bought your heart will remain steadfast your resistance potent and your vision glorious Repentance and worship become your rhythm and idols are resisted and replaced. Tiny outposts of worship can defy principalities, reconcile communities, transform history. God is at war for the love of your heart. May your worship resist idolatry. As we read scripture, we're confirmed in who we are. We confess our sin. We're restored uh, in our relationship, we covenant. And then we commit to live holy lives. Our hearts set on God. The next thing the Israelites commit to is Sabbath. And of all the different commandments that God has given, they could recommit to Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy. Uh, it says, when our neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seven years, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. They make a point of celebrating Sabbath, and there's heaps more to say here as well. Um, uh, but Sabbath is a gift given by God to His people, and even my experience this year, um, I we have a, a universal staff rule of um having a day off on monday and i broke that rule for half of the year because of family situation and um when when my son noah could get care and so i i worked on mondays and and had Noah on wednesdays and it was just so easy to compromise having my day off because everyone else was working um people would want to catch up it's the only time that worked and all this kind of thing it was easy to compromise and so i did but I, I got to the place of just feeling incredibly exhausted, spiritually dry, and so I, I swapped it back. I did start taking Mondays off and actually properly Sabbathing as best as I could, uh, which involved rest, a like proper rest, not just relaxing and watching um, Netflix or playing videos, but rest that fills me, that restores me. Uh, it was taking time to reconnect, reconnect with God, and reconnect with my family, and taking time to rejoice, to celebrate and enjoy the things, the gifts that God has given me and and celebrate creation. Doing those things made a massive impact on my spiritual well-being, my physical, mental, and and emotional health. And the Sabbath is given by God. It allows... um, it equalizes expectations on the people of God because it's not about um, doing and, and doing and you've got to achieve all these things, but there's one day where we don't have to do and all we have to do is be. It's a day for being, not for doing. And even in the Israelite context, every part of the Sabbath was every seventh of the year they would forgo working the land. And the Sabbath allowed for the land to heal. But the main point, the main purpose of the Sabbath in this incredibly fast-paced, high-energy, high-expectation world, it demonstrates dependence on God. It's not about having to achieve and to do and to do all this, but actually we can take a day and set it aside for the Lord to rest, to reconnect, to rejoice. And it demonstrates our reliance, our dependence on God a powerful thing to commit to. The last thing that Israelites commit to is generosity. They, um, uh, Verse 32, they we assume the responsibility of carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel of every year for the service of the house of God, for the bread set out at the table, the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings and the burnt offerings on Sabbath at, um, and the festivals. Um, they keep, they re- return to the practice of giving uh, and tithing, giving generously uh, to the work of the temple, the work of the Lord. And for the Levites, that was their well-being. That's how they ate was what was offered by uh, the rest of the people. And this this generosity demonstrated there uh, the reality that everything they own is not their own. It belongs to God. God has given us everything. Everything we have, everything we are is a gift from God. And being generous and and tithing, giving a tenth of what we have uh, to his kingdom for for God's work and God's building of his kingdom demonstrates uh, his generosity towards us, demonstrates that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And this radical generosity giving up money, time, privacy, homes, space, possessions. It demonstrates God's generosity. And that's what Israelites commit to. Now, all this this process, this process of seeing, um, of Scripture being read, And that leading to confirmation of who they are, their identity, leading to confession of sin, leading to renewal of covenant relationship, leading to commitment to live God's way. This is the pattern of being a disciple of Jesus. This is what being a Christian is all about, is hearing and receiving the Word of God, knowing who we are, we're a child of God, confessing our sin being restored in relation to God, and then committing ourselves to live God's way. And this pattern of discipleship, we, we'll, we've talked a bit about it. We've, we'll talk a lot about it next year. Uh, another way of looking at it, and you've probably heard it from Dave Shepard and probably heard it from me as well, is we belong to the people of God. We belong before we believe. We belong to the people of God. We believe the truth. The truth that God loves us, the truth that we are sinners, we need forgiveness. And by believing, we, we receive the forgiveness, we become We become who God has made us to be. Our relationships restored. We're a child of God. And then we build. We build God's kingdom. We commit to do the work that God has put us on this world to do. Belong, believe, become, build. The pattern of discipleship. Confirmation, confession, confession covenant commitment now we believe at at this church that this book is the word of god that this book as the word of god is useful for teaching to training correcting and instructing in in all righteousness equipping us to do and to live and, and showing us who we are and whose we are and so we want to take it seriously we want to take this book seriously what would it look like to, to take this book seriously? Now, what we've already some some um, changes we've we've made to um, the church service, like we started reading the Bible as a separate thing to the sermon in every service, because we believe that the Bible is the very Word of God, and that's important. And so, we're actually, creating a space in our in our worship to hear the Word of God read. And then, then uh, someone comes and explains it. Uh, next year, uh, we're going to be focusing on a few different um, biblical topics. Actually, this in the morning. I'm not sure why I'm saying this here. But anyway, if you here's a plug to come in the morning. All right? In the morning, uh, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching to his disciples. And then after that, we're going to spend the rest of the year with some breaks looking at other stuff, studying the book of Deuteronomy which is the fifth book of the law. And like I said to someone uh, just before, uh, in in the Bible, uh, all roads lead back to Deuteronomy and forward to Jesus. It's like the, the the book that underpins the full story of the Bible. I'm so excited to teach it. So if you want to hear about Deuteronomy and get some great teaching, I don't know why I'm plugging this really, but just read Deuteronomy. It is, it is a tricky book to, to un, unpack. Um, but the point of all this is we, we we make a commitment to teach the Bible here. We're making a commitment to teach the Bible. The other really exciting thing that I, I, uh, that I really should promote is um, a Bible-reading marathon. Now, this is something we did a few years ago. Was anyone here uh, part of the Bible-reading marathon? A few of us. Excellent. Excellent. I wasn't. And I really feel like I missed out um, where people met – and read the Bible, start to finish, just ongoing, consistently, Uh, everyone, um, you know, Booking into a slot and having that time to read. And we're doing it again. Beginning of next year, the first week of February, February 1st to 4th, uh, we're going to have a Bible reading marathon. And again, we'll get people to sign up to different specific times and read and we'll have um, space to come and to hear God's Word read. We'll stream it so you might be at work or doing at the gym or whatever and you can listen in to, to your community reading the Word of God. And as we make this commitment just like the Israelites did, to to read the Word of God, to put it out there, to make it public, to to read and to hear. Imagine what might happen, what God might do through His Word as it's read in its entirety. So I really commend that to you. February 1st to the 4th, we'll be throwing stuff out there soon um, until you know more about it. Do we actually take this book seriously? What would it look like to take the Bible seriously? What would this community look like if we took the Bible seriously? It would be a community of confirmation. We know who we are and whose we are. A community of confession that we are ready to confess and we don't have to pretend like we have it all together or that any one any one of us is is an elite great level 5 christian no we all we're all terrible people we're all broken we're all sinners in need of forgiveness and Jesus is the one that brings forgiveness we'll be a community that Uh, has a restored covenant with God, has a restored relationship with God. We are the sons and daughters of the living God. And we're a community that's committed to living His way, committed to be holy, committed to taking a Sabbath, committed to being radically generous. I'm going to pray and then we're going to do two things. The first thing is we're going to read a um, prayer of confession together. We've done this a few times. I'd love to do it more and more. Um, as we confess together our sin, recognizing, yeah, that none of us have it all together. None of us have done what it, what, what it takes to, to be accepted by God, but Jesus has done what it what it takes. And he offers that to every one of us. We're going to share confession together, and then we're going to share communion, celebrating and uh, participating in the work that God has done through his son, Jesus' Jesus' bloodshed and his body broken. Let me pray and then we'll we'll, uh, do those two things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that it's not just a book and not just words on page, but it is your very breath breathing into us, giving us life. And so we pray that we would be a people who hears your word and understands and responds. And Lord, we we pray uh, that we would be committed to hearing, committed to understanding your word, seeking out uh, teaching and, and unpacking it and thinking about it and wrestling with it. We pray out of that, that you would confirm in us who We are, that we would know that we are children of the most holy God, the creator of the world who loves us. We pray that we would be real about ourselves, we confess our sin, that we would know your love and know your forgiveness. We pray that we would be restored to you, that we would, we would, um, yeah, have that sense of intimacy with you, like an incredibly close friend. Just love spending time with you and, and just love your presence and love you as our relationship is restored. And we pray that we commit to living your way. Lord, make us holy. Identify the idols in our lives and help us to get rid of them. Uh, help us to to, to to set aside a day, a time for you and in, in that we might demonstrate our reliance on you and help us to be radically generous even though many of us have very little to give help us to be generous even with that especially with that Lord, we thank you for your word we pray you by your spirit would transform us into the community of God just as you restored the the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day Lord, we pray you would reform our culture and keep reforming our culture to be more like Jesus so that we might represent him and we might show him uh, to the world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said before, we're gonna do a prayer of confession. So if you wanna stand up for this. I've got my handy um, Anglican prayer book here best thing that come out of the Anglican church. I'm not afraid to say that's true. Most Anglicans will tell you as well. Um, uh, This um, confession, if you can have it, I'll just, I'll I'll read it to you first so you know what you're saying, and then we'll read it together. Uh, This confession is, most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way and we have done wrong. And we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. I'm going to give a moment for you to reflect on your own life. Reflect on the week that we've had. And the, the, the interactions you've had with um with people. Maybe there's specific things that we need to confess to God that come to mind. There's specific relationships that need restoration. But all of us need to say this confession together. We're well, reading together. Go to the next slide. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way. We have done wrong, and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us, wipe out our sins, and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit. That we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus our Saviour. Amen. The night before Jesus was portrayed and Jesus died. He was having dinner with his disciples. And he took bread. And he, he handed it around. And he said, this is my body. Broken for you. And he took a cup. And he, he handed the cup around and he said, This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. So as we come uh, to the table, we'll move this um, here in a second. We'll take bread and we'll eat it and we'll take a cup and, and hold that and we'll drink that together, remembering who we are that we are children of God, remembering what God has done for us, his body broken, his blood shed, so that we could be forgiven, that we could be restored. Uh, So in a moment when we're ready, um, let's come and do this.